Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my guest this week is Sunil Yu, former chief security scientist at Bank of America and an author now. Um, maybe I should ask you, Sunil, what are you up to now? Yeah, well, soon to be author. I haven't finished writing the book yet, but I hope to finish it pretty soon and to be able to call myself an, a legitimate author at that point. But right now, I'm focused on writing the book until I jump into my next gig. And I invited you on the podcast to dig a little deeper into the cyber defense matrix. So can you go all the way back to the creation of the cyber defense matrix? Uh, why you put this effort into this initiative? And what were you were hoping to accomplish in the very beginning when you first started thinking about it? Sure. So my background actually was in really creating new capabilities. And when I uh, joined Bank of America, I had fully intended on leveraging the resources of the bank to be able to create some of the best capabilities that you can imagine. Um, but right off the bat, I, w- I was asked to field all these entreaties from all these vendors that were trying to do business with Bank of America. And so um, uh, instead of building capabilities, I was swamped with having to uh, entertain sales calls from all these vendors, these security vendors that kept knocking on our doors. Which is and, the regular life of every CISO today. <laughs> yes. Well, essentially, yes. Um, the, my CISO basically said, hey, here, you you take this on. And uh, little did I know how onerous and cumbersome that would be. Well, as a part of that challenge, uh, having to deal with literally hundreds of vendors, I, I really needed a better way to organize everything. And I'm an engineer by nature, and as a result of that, I had to come up with something that um, allowed me to think through this problem set in a much more structured way. And so that's the, really the genesis of the cyber defense matrix. I, I was trying to deal with the onslaught of all these different vendors, trying to keep track of what each one was doing. Um, and also the other consideration was when you're in an organization with um, over 2,000 security professionals, you don't always know who has what problems. And so uh, not only was the cyber defense matrix useful for mapping vendors, but it was also useful for mapping uh, who within my organization did what. And so it becomes a natural supply and demand sort of matching, if you will, where I can put individuals and different team functions into the matrix, but but I can also then match that with vendors who are coming in saying that, they can address one particular part of the matrix. Got it. So before we get ahead of ourselves, we got to back up right now and explain what the matrix is. So let me try to do it first. Let me try to do it as an exercise. Okay, so sure. It, it, it's the cyber defense matrix maps very, very closely to the NIST cybersecurity framework, which across the top of this grid, you have these operational functions. functions. Mm-hmm. Okay, functions. so you have these operational functions at the, at the top. Uh, that maps to uh, technology that handles identification, protection, detect, respond, recover, which maps to the NIST cybersecurity framework. And down the left side, you have these asset classes that need to be protected, ranging from devices to applications to network to data to users. And then as you look at this grid with identify, protect, detect across the top, and the, the things that need to be protected down the left, then you can start uh, uh, the use cases that you've talked about in the past, you can start mapping, uh, like you like you mentioned, vendors and technologies to things, and then there are multiple other use cases. Yes, that's 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 the essence of it. Um, th- there's one other aspect of the cyber defense matrix which I have found to be particularly interesting, and in that it continues to reveal new insights on a regular basis. 
And it's this notion of the degree of dependency on people, process, and technology. And if we saw those on a continuum, on the uh, functions of identify and protect, we have a much greater dependency on technology and a lesser dependence on people. And as you go from identify, protect to the other side, detect, respond, and recover, we have an increasing dependency on people and a decreasing dependency on technology. And so the shift happens between protect and detect And uh, what it helps us recognize is that, again, there's a different degree of dependency on these different, uh, on people, process, and technology as it relates to these different functions. Now, process is equal throughout, but uh, just knowing that there's this shift from a technology dependency to a people dependency is actually a fairly important facet of the cyber defense matrix as well. And it's interesting as well, it's important to add as well that between protect and detect, so identify and protect the first two on the left, that there's a line there uh, between those two and the other three, detect, respond, recover, as it relates to uh, what we might call pre-event, post-event. Right, or boom. Uh, it separates left of boom from right of boom. The, the line between protect and detect separates uh, left of boom from right of boom, where that line equals boom. And that's primarily based on this notion that um, on the left side of boom, we have a lot of technical controls in place to address uh, whatever issues that we might have in our in our environment. And oftentimes attackers are specifically trying to thwart those technical defenses or technical controls. Well, when someone evades a technical control, it's not going to be typically another technical control that's going to find them. It's going to be people, people who find um, uh, other attackers that have basically evaded our technical controls. So naturally, there's going to be a lesser dependence on technology as we shift to right of boom, because Mm -hmm. you're now looking for attackers that have explicitly bypassed your technical controls, and now you need people to go and find them. Right. Like threat hunting, for instance, is a perfect example. Exactly. How do you, and and this is one part where I I struggle a little bit, and I know you've described it in the past, how do you use this cyber defense matrix and these these grids to determine what is a platform versus what is just a point product. And this is a source of confusion for a lot of folks because everyone describes himself as a platform. Help me understand how you fit it here. Sure. So uh, the term point product becomes much more obvious in the context of a uh, of the cyber defense matrix because a point product really only satisfies one thing in the cyber defense matrix, a, a very specific function, very specific narrow uh, capability. And if I could somehow visually represent it, it's essentially like showing uh, within the cyber defense matrix. So you have within the cyber defense matrix, it's a five by five matrix. You have 25 boxes. Imagine one of those boxes where you have a point product, but it's not even filling that whole box. It's filling some really small subset of that box. And so uh, visually, you can actually see that it's truly a point product because it's a feature of potentially a larger set of capabilities that may be inside that box. When we look at what is a platform, then what we would expect to see is something that either fills that whole box or even goes beyond that box to provide supporting capabilities across uh, horizontally or vertically. Um, And when I say horizontally, I mean uh, supporting capabilities across an asset class, let's say, supporting on a whole bunch of different functions within uh, on the endpoint, or um, vertically, 
And what I mean by vertically is supporting a given operational function, let's say like detect. And so can I use this platform to detect not only intrusions in my endpoint, but also intrusions in my network or intrusions in my applications or maybe even insider, you know, as a, as a use case. So those are vertical type of platforms. And then the horizontal platforms are those that address a particular asset class and do it as, as extensively as possible. Do you, have you found, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm trying to get a sense from you. When, when you first came up with this idea, you started mapping it at the Bank of America and then you started evangelizing it and sharing it with the rest of the industry. Use cases uh, for it becomes fascinating and you've spent some time at RSA talking about newer use cases. Is there any use case for the cyber defense matrix that really surprised you? You didn't expect it to uh, uh, fit here, but it really fit perfectly. Any of those uh, stories you can tell? Yeah, there are a couple of use cases that I, I've discovered that uh, actually still need some additional work or uh, some additional input. But I think it could be potentially really powerful if we could find a way to, to, to capitalize on it. So one of the use cases was around this notion of um, business constraints and security design patterns. So we oftentimes hear within our industry that this particular that that we're all unique in some way. Uh, this business is unique. This this uh, use case is unique, and we need to go and design a whole new security architecture for it. Because whatever constraints that this uh, function or this business unit has is unique. And what I've discovered is <laughs> it's not actually unique. In fact those business constraints repeat themselves over and over again across different other businesses. But those business constraints may be different uh, uh, from one business to another business, but they will still repeat as, as we look across the broader uh, spectrum of companies. And to give you a specific example, so, um, and even within a business, by the way, you'll have this different business constraints for different business units. So for example, let's suppose I have uh, a high-speed trading business unit. Well, those business constraints that I'm going to face for that particular line of business is going to be um, anything that impedes latency or it creates latency within their network. So I may have business constraints that limit my ability to implement security controls on the network because anything I do there is going to basically wreck my business because it increases latency and then they can't make money. Well, those business constraints then uh, I can visually show on the cyber defense matrix and then that provides a framework that helps us design security controls that are optimized against those business constraints. Okay, so let's suppose now you have those business constraints captured. Would that also represent other businesses that have that are very sensitive to latency? And lo and behold, the answer is yes, it does. So can we not reuse the security design pattern that we created for this uh, business constraint for this other business that has similar business constraints. Mm-hmm. So the the notion of capturing business constraints in a methodical, uh, structured way and cataloging that and then working towards coming up with the most ideal security design pattern that works uh, alongside that business constraint is something that I found to be uh, that could really have a lot of potential as it relates to the usage of the cyber defense matrix to help our 
practice become easier and easier over time. Right. And what, what I found is just from just talking to CISOs and practitioners, the, the, the everyday use case for the cyber defense matrix is what it was originally intended for, which is to map these hundreds of vendors knocking on your doors, kind of like the, the vendor relationship uh, communication tool internally. So that's a heavy use case. Do you, do you run into issues where folks are looking at the attack uh, framework or, you know, just the original NIST framework and getting framework overload? Yes. Um, and there's a lot of frameworks to have to sift through, exactly. a lot of compliance frameworks even as well. And yes, I don't want to be like the XKCD comic where <laughs> we complain about having 14 standards and the next day we have, you know, we complain about having 14 standards and we need one that encompasses them all and the next day we have 15 standards. <laughs> well, uh, in some ways, though, that's that's kind of what I've been envisioning what this matrix can help us do, which is it's a it's a matrix that unifies them all, if you will. And my my goal for the matrix is to have it be as complete as possible, and that assertion challenges me to then say, give me some framework, give me something else that someone has come up with, and if I can't represent uh, that framework inside of uh, the cyber defense matrix, then I can't make that claim, and ultimately. I may see that uh, I'll, I'll work towards making the cyber defense matrix more complete, right? Okay, so, right, so let me let me put you on the spot then. Attack, yeah. Attack is growing in popularity. It's pretty detailed and intense. There's an ICS version and so on. When you look at the attack framework and just the growth of that and the embrace of that, how do you how do you have a conversation about the CDM within Attack? Sure. So Attack is, first of all, let, let's talk about what function attack is trying to mm -hmm. address. And for the most part, um, the attack is actually trying to perform the function or support the function of detect. Because what we're sharing is uh, all these insights on how you find adversary activities as represented through their TTPs. And through those, uh, through those behaviors, we can then say, okay, we found so-and-so. So, -so. so that, that's the core of attack. Within attack, there's also mitigations, which then uh, uh, address the protect side of it. But the, again, the core of attack is uh, on the detect piece. Now, if you look at if you look at attack very carefully, what you'll notice is that some of the detections are actually most of the detections are device centric. Um, you'll find that most of the detections talk about how you look for adversaries in a, in a Windows environment, for example. And so that's going to be largely device-centric detection, uh, detection methods. Um, but if you look uh, even more carefully, you'll notice that some are network-centric, and some are uh, application-centric, and some are user-centric, and so on and so forth. And so as we look at those detection methods, those then map to the corresponding asset class. So the vast majority of the attack framework um, uh, components will go under device um, detect, but then there's a handful that will go under some of the other asset classes. And, and to give you a very clear example of what, what I mean here, if you go and look at the uh, attack evaluations where they are evaluating an endpoint detection and response tool, okay, an EDR, well, those detections are going to be, of course, tied to device detect. And you'll notice that these EDR products, they're not going to be able to cover the network detect or the um, application detect type of uh, uh, TTPs that you'll see in the attack framework because they're not device centric. 
you'll only find them on the endpoint. And if you have an endpoint detection and response tool, you're only going to be able to, able to cover the endpoint-based detections. And so that, that's just another uh, way to reinforce this notion that I can map a lot of what we see in attack to the cyber defense matrix. It will fall under the detect space, but it will fall under each of these different asset classes and not just on the endpoint. Is it telling to us that a lot of the activity in venture capital funding, technological innovation, Silicon Valley startup activity is in device applications and identify, protect at the top, top left of the grid? Yeah. So first of all, uh, going to the notion of where most investments are going from the startup world, because software scales better uh, because these tech-oriented companies are going to have higher multiples. You're going to focus, of course, then on those companies that are building technology. And because of that, if you look at the cyber defense matrix and see that, again, the bulk of technologies are focused on problems associated with identify and protect, well, the preponderance of the technologies will also be there as well. And thus, many of the, many of the uh, security startups will end up being there as well. As far as what uh, asset class that they're covering. I'm not sure if I would say necessarily that um, the device space or the network space is the most uh, invested upon. I, I would say perhaps those are, those are uh, in many ways, the legacy spaces because they've been around so long or at least the problem sets around those have been around so long that we can see that there's already been a lot of investment in those spaces. But we're actually actively seeing a lot of investment, let's say, in the application space, especially as we try to merge security and DevOps, there's a whole bunch of investment that I'm seeing going into that space. And, and I think that's great because ultimately that space is actually underserved. And maybe that's the, uh, the root, of your, root of your question. Are there any particular spaces that are underserved? Yeah, that's and, where I'm heading. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, are we throwing money and investments or things that are just easier to handle? and leaving uh, important things on the serve? Well, easier is a relative term, I guess. Um, so here's a consideration. Every time we want to do something on the endpoint or on the network, we have to install some agents or some some sort of sensor on, mm -hmm. on those platforms. And that's never an easy proposition. Uh, and there's agent fatigue. Agent fatigue is real. It absolutely is real. And uh, we're going to only perpetuate that problem until we come up with some sort of universal sensor that allows us to gain the telemetry that we need for a given asset class and not have to install yet another, another agent. What, what we'll see, though, is that same agent fatigue happen in these other asset classes and other domains as well. So let's take, for example, the application space. Okay, um, When's the last time you've heard uh, someone claim, ah, you only need to uh, put in these three lines of Java code and you're done, right? Well, uh, everyone is saying that. And after everyone adds their three lines of Java code, which, by the way, explodes into many, many more lines of Java code, what happens on the user's uh, browser? It slows everything down and the user has a horrible experience and you have all these interdependencies that break your application. It's just very similar to what we're seeing on the endpoint, what we used to see on the endpoint. Anyway, um, but uh, I guess bottom line, though, is that you have all these different uh, vendors coming in saying, we can, we can address your problems on whatever space it might be, but we need to be able to install another uh, quote-unquote agent, and that may take a different form than what we traditionally think of an agent. But nonetheless, it's something that acts as a sensor that collects telemetry for the purposes of understanding that telemetry to then determine 
you have any vulnerabilities and are, is anyone trying to exploit them to be able to get into your environment? One of the things you've, you've started to do uh, recently is uh, map the cyber defense matrix and this grid uh, to stories and, and over the years from the 1980s when we were in this identification mode through the decades. And you're making the argument that the 2020s will be a new era of what? Well, um, so the the storyline is that each of these eras, starting back in the 80s to the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s, maps to the NIST cybersecurity framework. So the 80s happened to the main problem that we faced was an identify problem. The 2000, the sorry, 1990s, we faced a protect problem, and because we faced a protect problem, we came up with things like AV and firewalls. The 2000s, we were inundated with logs, and so we came up with uh, detect. Uh, solutions like IDS and SIM. In mm -hmm. the 2010s, uh, we were inundated with all these attacks and uh, with breaches, and so we we had to come up with respond solutions like like uh, EDR and other firefighting tools. And what's interesting again is that it maps to the NIST cybersecurity framework. So the 2020s is going to be a recover problem. And uh, the the question then is, well, if that's the problem, what kind of solutions are we going to see? And as I look across the security landscape, I saw very few, if, if any at all. And the other consideration that I had to take in was, if I look at the degree of dependency again, on the right side of Boom, uh, under Recover, I have a very small dependency on uh, on technology and a very large dependency on on people. That we, and, that we, uh, we just discussed this dependency on technology oh, yes. versus people as we move down the right. So this this amplifies that as we moved into the 2020s in this era of recovery. Uh, the challenge we have is that that's a people-heavy uh, space, right? Yeah. And, and so ultimately, the question is, what kind of technologies could we, would or should we see if it's going to be much more people-dependent? And uh, let me quote, I'm going to quote John Allspy. He, in this article that he wrote called How Your Systems Keep Running Day After Day, he talks about the fact that we need to start taking human performance seriously in our industry. And if we don't, we're going to continue to see brittle systems with ever-increasing impacts on our business and society. And so he states this to say, look, as we go towards this, uh, in my view, the, the way I interpreted his statement um, or refashion the statement was, as we move to this next era of recover, we're going to have to depend a lot more on people to come up with clever designs that essentially leverage the existing technology we have, we have today, but build them in a way that is far more or far less fragile uh, and essentially can handle uh, damage on a regular basis can handle events that forces us to that forces irrecoverability, I guess, if you will. So we're going to see in the 2020s a whole bunch of irreversible attacks, and uh, because that's going to become the norm, we need to re rethink how we build things and how we design things. And can you just describe what an irreversible attack is? Oh can yeah, so like ransomware, like ransomware and wiper malware, that kind of thing. Right, right. Got it. So. So those are irreversible attacks. Sure, you can pay the ransom, but for all intents and purposes, you should consider that an irreversible attack. And when you have an irreversible attack, it doesn't matter how well you secured it. It's it's no longer there anymore. And so you need to think differently about what do we do with those kind of assets when we're going to see irreversible attacks come on a regular basis. Are you starting to see entrepreneurs and innovators move in this direction of addressing this new era of recovery by using technology to address the scaling and the people problem? So I'll, I'll give you an example. I was talking to Vinnie Lou, uh, Bishop Fox about their new continuous attack, um, attack service uh, technology. It, it's just this, this continuous, constant scanning 
to uh, expose attack surface and then provide the the remediation as a managed service on the back end. So it's a combination of technology and people. Are you starting to see this trend shifting as people address this recovery? Well, so I, I see two different groups of stakeholders. Uh, and let me, uh, I don't necessarily want to put Vinny in uh, either one of those at this point, but really I just want to characterize two different movements, if you will. Okay. So there's one movement that says we need to continue to secure everything uh, look for those attack surfaces and basically secure everything that we find that's vulnerable. On a continuous I would say there's a, basis. Yes, on a continuous Instead basis. Instead of this point in time, old paradigm. I think that's the shift I'm noticing. Well, hold that thought for a moment. Okay. Uh, I, I fully agree that we need to continuously be looking for vulnerabilities, but not necessarily in all things. So on one side, again, you have uh, a camp that says secure everything, but I would ask you, uh, there's another camp that says why secure it at all? Can we not build things so that they don't need to be secured at all? And uh, the way I, I've characterized that dichotomy is by saying, on the one on the first side, you have basically a whole bunch of people saying we need to protect the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of all these systems that we have. We need to basically CIA our systems. On the other hand, I would say uh, if we build our systems to be distributed, immutable, and ephemeral. Distributed, immutable, and ephemeral, or DIE, we don't need to secure them at all. If we design systems to DIE, why bother securing them at all? They don't need to be secured. They don't need to be continuously scanned for vulnerabilities. You don't really care, actually. And I think what we need to do as we move towards this next age of recover in the 2020s, our first step should actually to be see, to see whether or not we can design systems to DIE. And if we uh, can't come up with the right design pattern, if we can't take that first step towards DIE, then we fall back to having to protect it. But our first step should always be towards DIE f- uh, first. Okay, and then as a fallback, go towards CIA. And there's a whole bunch of other uh, similar types of technologies that we've seen that actually uh, have DIE uh, attributes. And so I'll, another example. Yeah, give me some examples. Uh, like a lambda function, uh, or you know, a serverless architecture of some sort. So I recall Caleb Sema one time built this um, this lambda function, and uh, it basically provided a bash prompt, and he exposed it on the web for anyone to go and, and attack it. And he basically said, "Hey, here's here's a here's a bash function that's running uh, behind lambda. See what you can do with it. See if what see what you can steal. Do whatever you want with it." And uh, I asked him the other day, "So what happened? Did anyone actually break into it?" Were they successful in, in compromising it? And basically the answer was no. If anyone got it anywhere close, close, the system, the Lambda function basically went away afterwards and then there was nothing else remaining to attack. Now, he did mention someone uh, was clever enough to find a way to do some uh, very brief crypto mining. And so uh, <laughs> shut down the service after that. But, but nonetheless, it, it's a very, um, the design is already meant to, to DIE, the, the system goes away after it's being used, and thus there's very little to secure. He, he did nothing to secure this bash prompt; just basically expose it and say, "Have at it." Sunil, you're a you're a lifer in this industry. You're a cybersecurity lifer, uh, and and something that always I always ask all my guests because it's something I myself struggle with is. We're in the trenches and we're watching at all this, uh, we're watching at all this innovation. We're looking at all the trends. We're seeing companies become a lot more mature, security programs built out. 
And in a very general sense, you get the sense that on the cybersecurity front, things are progressively getting better. That's kind of like an, an understanding. At the same time, I cannot open a website and see a new data breach, massive data breaches, infections. It's just nonstop fire hose of news related to infections. Why is there such a disconnect between, you know, as, as an industry, we're getting better at securing things, we're building better technologies, and things still suck a lot for, for the average company. Why are we there? Do you, do you struggle with this sure. disconnect as well? Uh, no, actually, I, well, I used to, but I don't struggle with it anymore because I, I've divided the world up in a way that makes sense of this in a much more easier to understand fashion. And so let me let me uh, characterize another quick lesson point here, I guess. So if you if you divide the world into pets and cattle, okay, where pets are things that we care about, uh, if you get sick, you take it to the vet, you know, you like giving it hugs and so on and so forth, versus cattle where you brand it with them some, some obscure name that you can't pronounce, and when it gets sick, you shoot it and you move on. If you divide up the world to pets and cattle, uh, thing, things start to make sense. So the things that are pets, you still have to protect and you still have to secure those. Cattle, you don't care. You cattle, you let DIE. Pets, you CIA. And the breaches that you hear on a regular basis, those are pets, okay? The breaches that, if someone breaches a cattle, you don't really hear about it because no one cares, okay? Now, here's the problem. We have too many pets. We have way too many pets in our environments. And as those pets essentially get killed through breaches, we will have fewer and fewer pets to have to deal with. Now, one of the things that we need to try to avoid is new pet creation. We want to try to minimize the creation of pets. Um, and we will always have pets. So that's, let's make sure that's clear. But let's try to man have some sort of pet control here and minimize the number of pets that we have and prevent cattle from becoming pets. And what we, as we move towards that sort of paradigm, I mentioned earlier, as we build systems, make the first step be towards DIE or towards becoming cattle and less towards becoming a pet and thus requiring CIA. And so the, the things that we're seeing getting compromised, the things that are causing uh, these headline news, those are all pets. And as far as I'm concerned, unless you're securing your pet properly and essentially uh, doing what you can to ensure that uh, it doesn't get run over, then uh, until that happens, we're going to continue to see more headline news about those pets dying. Uh, on the other hand, as we start building systems that are more DIE-like, those systems, I don't I don't think we're going to see headlines for those systems, because, at least not from the standpoint of breaches, because as I said, there's nothing to breach. There's nothing to lose there that uh, would cause us concern. It's very similar to um, our biological systems. If you think about your skin cells versus your brain cells, you don't even care or know when your brain, when your skin cells fall off and die, right? You don't even notice. But I'm pretty sure you would care if your brain cells died. Uh, and I'm sure at some point you'll start noticing when your brain cells die. So, or you might not notice, you may be completely <laughs> oblivious to it, but uh, other people might notice. Your brain cells are pets and they need to be CIA'd. Your skin cells are like cattle, and you don't care if they die. Are you worried, like I am, that cybersecurity, good cybersecurity and good security hygiene is only available for the haves and the have-nots? The SMBs, the smaller businesses are just being 
necessarily priced out of any sort of good technologies or forced to just outsource it to Google, Amazon, or, or, or Microsoft. Yeah, so the notion of this, the uh, cybersecurity poverty line is a real thing. There's a lot of organizations that are definitely over, uh, under the poverty line. But um, there's another way to look at the problem. And um, it, it's, it's a question of what causes you to be under the poverty line to begin with. So let's suppose, going back to the pets and cattle analogy, if you have a lot of pets, but you don't have an in-house veterinarian, or you don't have any experience on how to manage a thousand pets, then you're going to be in trouble. You're definitely going to be in trouble. But if you can build, um, if you actually think about how you can build systems to be DIE-like, you don't have to have, the, have that problem. If you only have one pet, you could actually secure that pet pretty well. I mean, there's a lot of families here who have lots of pets. I'm sorry, have one pet in their household. They do a pretty good job of, of protecting that pet. Now, uh, when that pet gets sick, you may need to turn to a professional, like a veterinarian or uh, and preventative care and stuff. You're going to still go to a veterinarian. But um, if you only have one pet in your household, then you do a pretty good job. Most people do a pretty good job of keeping that pet uh, safe. If you have 50 pets or you run a feral cat colony, you probably will need to be properly resourced to do that. And if you don't have the right resources, then you're going to be well under the poverty line, so to speak. And I would have a great deal of concern for those pets that are in your house. And uh, if you don't have the right uh, resources or the right skills or the talent um, and oversight, then uh, you wouldn't be surprised if one of those pets runs out the runs out the house and gets run over by a car, at which point the SPCA or the Humane Society should be rightfully coming after you. Right. but And the reality, though, is that those folks will have to rely on outsourcing security to a third party, right? I mean, there's just no way. The security poverty line is not going to be addressed for SMBs very soon. No, and we shouldn't expect to, but we should also expect to have SMBs. In my view, we should try to encourage SMBs to leverage resources like, for example, a hosted email from from Google or Office 365, as opposed to trying to set up their own email server right. and thereby. Yeah, that's what I pen. meant. That's what I meant by outsourcing things. So your entire productivity suite goes up to Microsoft, so you don't have to worry about managing. Uh, that's right. Office 365. Uh, right. Uh, it's also a worry on mobile side as well. To get good top line security, you need to spend fifteen hundred dollars on a new iPhone, and, and there's a poverty line there around what mobile security offers as well. That's another whole other discussion. Um, let me wrap up. We're at 37 minute mark. I have uh, just a few more questions, uh, but I want to wrap up with coming out of RSA. We had the innovation sandbox. Uh, you and I talked about mapping the innovation sandbox uh, finalists to the cyber defense matrix. And again, it mapped closely to the top of the uh, left of boom. Do you, did you come out of RSA getting a sense that things are shifting? Anything exciting or interesting you saw there that you can share? Uh, well, my joke is usually um, that I'm in San Francisco that week and I hear there's a conference going on. So uh, unfortunately, I wasn't, despite the fact that I had a full pass and I, I, was, I spoke at the event, I actually wasn't able to attend any of the sessions. And so um, I, I can't necessarily speak to any of the talks that were there. Uh, I did have a chance to run through the vendor expo hall, and uh, I, I prefer, I traditionally prefer to hit the periphery because that's where you'll see potentially the, the newest innovations. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, the ones that I thought were actually most interesting were the, those that were uh, tied to the physical space. 
and uh, companies that were um, tackling not the cyber side of the world, but actually the physical side of the world. That, that's a, as we converge between the cyber and physical spaces, the downstream implications and second order and third order impacts, uh, I think we'll only start understanding at greater depth once people start taking advantage of those things. Right. And uh, we'll see uh, what will happen. I, I think even in the context of the uh, coronavirus, um, we're seeing uh, third order, fourth order effects that were completely unanticipated, uh, or at least most people didn't anticipate. And it's causing all these trickle down in, uh, impacts and issues. And likewise, when it comes to cyber physical systems, I think we'll see those sort of downstream uh, third order, fourth order effects that we, we can't even imagine right now. Sunil, thank you so much. Um, I have to get you back on the podcast. My list of questions is still very long, and I think we can do we can do two or three more episodes on just the cyber defense matrix and some other use cases. I want to thank you for your time. Uh, stay safe, and we'll be in touch. Thank you for having me. Take care.